Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is John Forsyth. I'm the Vicar or Senior Minister, and a very warm welcome if you are visiting, particularly if you are part of the Lacey Entourage, and I think I'm using that word appropriately. Uh, it has been such a joy uh, to see uh, a baptism, not just of one, but of three young people who trust the Lord Jesus. Uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know that grace is amazing. Grace is joyful. Grace is a blessing. But grace is also unsettling. It's unsettling. Now, uh, back when I was an assistant minister, uh, we had a church that was right next to a school. And on election day, we decided to do something to try and boost uh, our, our kind of presence in the community, uh, to engage people on mission. And what we tried to do was we set up a, a, a store right at the front of church, which was next to school where the people were voting, uh, to give away bacon and egg rolls. That is, for free. There was no catch. It just said, free bacon and egg rolls, as the swarms of happy voters uh, wandered out. Now, this was, of course, a brilliant idea. And your nodding faces confer with me. And it wasn't just because I thought of it that made it brilliant. Uh, because it was a brilliant example of grace. A free, who, who wouldn't want one now even? A free bacon and egg roll. Uh, and we thought it would be brilliant. Uh, and of course, it wasn't. It was actually an unmitigated disaster. We literally, and I'm using that word correctly, could not give them away. We tried, every wanting to know, what's the cost? What are you raising money for? People would take one and then feel obliged to give us and throw money at us as they walked away. I would awkwardly chase people down the street. They're free, take one, they're free, as they walked just that little bit faster to get away from the weird minister at the church. So here's the point, right? Grace is unsettling. It's disconcerting. It feels often unnatural when we're confronted with pure, unadulterated grace. And I think there are, there are at least two reasons why. And the first one is that most of our relationships are transactional. We live in the you-get-what-you-deserve world, or at least you should get what you deserve world. There's a reason you go to work. Your boss pays you. But Grace says, what you deserve is irrelevant. Uh, secondly, Grace undermines agency and choice. And agency and choice are two big values of our world. Grace, by its very de uh, definition, is something that we receive rather than something we choose. We don't earn gifts. We can give hints. It's my son's birthday and he's written a long list of things on the fridge that he would like. But ultimately, it is what other people decide to give you. How much to spend on you. It is their choice, not yours. And so grace can be unsettling because grace means you are not in control. And we like to be in control. Well, friends and visitors, we've been preaching through Romans 9 to 11, some of the most challenging parts of Scripture. Tim Keller says, 
that Romans 9 to 11 are the hardest chapters to preach and that chapter 11 is the hardest chapter in all of the Bible to preach. And so we're preaching an extreme passage. And what is happening through 9 to 11 is that Paul, as he, as he writes to this church in Rome, is responding to a challenge, a question, an issue. And that is, if Israel, God's chosen people who have been promised and, and who've got the covenant, why are so many of them seemingly cut off and cursed from Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ? And so the question that Paul is helping us wrestle through is, look, has God actually been faithful to his promises? He made all these promises about Israel, but yet they don't seemingly seem to be fulfilled. Therefore, can we trust God? And if we're a Gentile, if we're not Jewish, how much more so is this a problem? Does God's word hold true? And so in 9 to 11, Paul answers this question. And the answer is, no, God's word has not failed. And throughout these chapters, Paul has been really wrestling and us wrestling with him with two really big issues that sit in tension. And I think last week, uh, Alex had a duck uh, rabbit picture. Am I right in? I wasn't here, I was preaching at Parkville. But that idea, two things that sit together, we can't just throw out one. Scripture is very clearly teaching us both. Firstly, that in chapter, in chapter 9, God is divinely sovereign. He will choose whom he will choose. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And chapter 10 then journeys through this idea that Israel is also responsible. They have failed to recognize the Messiah. It's on their heads. And both of these things are true. And in chapter 11, he's continuing this argument and he's focusing on this fact that God's saving grace must be sovereign grace. God's saving grace must be sovereign grace. And so when we come to chapter 11, you'll notice Paul asks a question that he's been kind of going over and over again. He says, did God reject his people? His people here are Israel. Has God failed in keeping his promise to make Israel a blessing to the nations? And Paul's answer is very simple. By no means. No chance. Tell him he's dreaming. And then what Paul does is to back this up, he gives four reasons why. And each of these reasons sits within the context of God's sovereign grace. And the first is, hey, check out me, says Paul. Check out me. God has not rejected his people. I am one of his people, in verse 1. I am an Israelite myself, says Paul, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin, an Israelite from Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. And if I'm not rejected and I'm an Israelite, then we know God has not stopped working for the salvation of his people. Exhibit A, Paul. Well, exhibit B, Paul says, no, God has not rejected his people. He actually foreknew Israel. And this is in verse 2. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, uh, foreknew. Now, we need to stop and look at that word foreknew. See, foreknowing, that word there, it's not a passive idea. The idea that you can have a time machine and go into the future and know the lotto results, Right? No, there actually is in this word 
a commitment, an understanding, not just in knowing the future, but determining the future. Uh, it's the same word used back in Romans 8:29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God has already known and chosen, not just known because it was going to happen at some point, no, through his own sovereign action knows Israel. Therefore, no, God has not rejected his people. And thirdly, Paul says, look, God has not rejected his people. Remember the story of Elijah. This is the second half of verse 2 to verse 4. And Paul compares his day to the terrible days of Elijah. And here he quotes 1 Kings 19.10. says, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Now, it's safe to assume Elijah is not having a particularly good day. This is hardly what you call an inspirational verse from Scripture, is it? There is no one left. Just a bit of context so you kind of know what, what's happening with poor Elijah here. This is during the time of King Ahab, who was making Israel bad again. In fact, he was the worst king Israel had. He married a woman called Jezebel and led Israel to worship Baal, and they killed prophets. Hundreds of God's prophets are killed. And Elijah is sent to basically say, stop it, you're doing the wrong thing. And needless to say, he is not well received. And in verse 4, we have what God's answer to Elijah was. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to bow. Paul is saying, look, just as there was a remnant in those dark days with Ahad and Jezebel killing God's prophets, so there is a remnant today. God has not forgotten his people. And two things to notice about what God says in that verse. Notice that this is a remnant reserved by God. In other words, God is active in preserving his people. It's not just those who happen to do the right thing, no. God is actively preserving his people. And notice that this remnant is reserved for God. In other words, the argument isn't about the nature of people. Paul is not arguing, no, just as there were some faithful people in Elijah's day, there'll be some faithful people in my day. No, he's saying, just as God acted sovereignly in Elijah's day, so God will act sovereignly now. And that's really clear when you get to verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Sovereign grace. Chosen by grace grace see Paul is saying the only reason that there was a remnant in Elijah's day and the only reason there's there's a remnant in his own day is because they are chosen by grace and grace alone God's grace is sovereign grace and that's Paul's point for Elijah's day his day and indeed for our day in other words there's always been in Israel a faithful remnant a spiritual Israel within Israel, even when it seemed like Israel had been utterly forsaken and forgotten and taken over because God chooses by grace. 
And therefore, of course, God has not forsaken his people. He saves his people by grace and he has chosen his people by grace. And fourthly, not surprisingly, his fourth point is, look, God has not rejected his people because it's about grace. Let's look at five and six together. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, it can no longer be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace is grace. In other words, what Paul is telling us here with crystal clarity is that your election depends entirely on grace and not works. In other words, saying it's not about you. And notice here the contrast is very clearly works versus grace. It's not a contrast between two different types of human activity. He's not saying Israel did this thing, but they should have done that thing. No, he's saying, no, it's a difference between divine activity, grace, what God does, versus human activity, works, what we do. They are the two categories that he's speaking about. And what he's saying is, look, if our election, it was based on anything, even our own faith, then it is no longer grace then we would be the decisive act causing our election. If we made it work, then it's no longer sovereign grace. Just think about that for a moment. How could God's grace be sovereign if it depended upon our initial decision? Even if God looked ahead in time, and he says, I wonder who's going to choose me. I get in my, he's, he's got foreknowledge, right? So if, if I can look ahead and see those who chose him, chose me, I should say, um, they're still not chosen by divine grace. The starting point is still a decisive human act. And God would just be a responder. His response would be determined by our actions and therefore grace would not be grace. Because grace must be completely free and undeserving or it's not grace. Grace must be completely sovereign or it's not grace. The starting gun of grace is not our action, but God's initiative. Now this morning we saw Caitlin and Sean and Kara get baptised and it was a wonderful, joyful thing. And that was a sign of God's grace. As wonderful and beautiful and I'm sure always well behaved, isn't that right, ladies? Your kids never make a mistake. No, they're perfect angels. Uh, this was not a declaration of how wonderful and, and perfect Caitlin and Sean and Kara were. It was a sign of God's grace in washing them clean. That is sovereign grace. God's work from beginning to end. And so if there's sovereign grace, Paul then addresses the issue, well then what, what about those in Israel who have not been elect? And verse 7 we read, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, 
The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Now, the remnant, that is, those who were chosen, obtained it, that is, righteousness, a right standing before God, salvation, and the rest did not obtain that. They didn't get righteousness. But notice, too, they were hardened. Hardened. Their hearts are actually hardened to God's mercy. And this is because if we do not have a new heart given to us by God, our old heart doesn't just stay where it is. It becomes increasingly more hardened, more stubborn, more religious, more self-righteous. The Puritans used to say that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So why are their hearts hardened? Well, once again, this is where we need to hold these two truths together. The complete freedom and sovereignty of God in hardening, but also the complete guilt and accountability of humanity in having hard hearts. And Paul addresses each of those things when he starts quoting Scripture. The first one is that God is active and free to harden hearts. Verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. And in chapter 9, we've already seen Paul address this issue in some, in some detail, that God's grace depends on his freedom. And God is never dependent on our wills for his choices. 9.18, so he has mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And so the first thing we must say about the basis of this hardening is that God is not constrained by human will. We do not uh, provide the ultimate decisive call for the action of God. God is sovereign. But at the same time in verses 9 and 10, it's very clear that human beings are responsible God's sovereignty does not excuse human responsibility. And in verse 9, he's quoting Psalm 69, verses 22 to 23. And he says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. So you notice that word retribution in verse 9. The implication there is guilt and punishment of a wrong. See, humanity, we are not Switzerland. Uh, I don't mean we do like chocolate, like Switzerland's like chocolate. I mean, we're not neutral when it comes to God. We're not sitting on the fence. That is not our starting point. It is not neutrality towards God. No, we have already chosen and we chose sin. That is humanity's starting point. And hardening is a result of sin. The point Paul is making here is, this is not unjust, this is actually justice. It is human hearts that have rejected their creator. And what's the result of this hardness and sin? Well, in verse 9, good things become a trap. May their tables become a snare and a trap. Now, I've built quite a few Ikea tables, and there is a real chance when building an Ikea table that it will become a, a, snap, a, a trap and a snare if you don't use the Allen key correctly. 
Uh, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Uh, in the biblical language, the table is a sign of blessing. It's a table that is full of food and wine. Bountiful things, the simple life, the good things in life. That is what the table signifies. But because of our sinfulness and hardness of hearts, these good things, this table full of bounty, instead becomes a stumbling block and a trap. To the blessings that we receive from God, things which show his goodness things which should lead our hearts to thankfulness, actually end up leading our hearts away from God. And so our physical appetites for food or for sex or for success or for family deaden our spiritual appetite to worship God. And gifts become idols because of hard hearts. We replace God with the good. And the result, well, in verse 10, religion becomes slavery. Again, the hardening is explained as blindness, as it was in verse 8. But then God says this really quite powerful image, that their backs are bent forever. It's a picture of slavery under extreme burden. Blind to the righteousness in the Lord Jesus eternally trying to work it out, trying to earn it, self-made, self-exalting, back-breaking and endless. It's not a positive picture of our self-righteousness. And so Paul is saying, look, we express this idolatry when our hearts are hardened, either by chasing after the good gifts from God rather than worshipping the giver of those gifts, or we construct a morality that make our work rather than God's grace the basis of our religion and life. And God's word is teaching us here very clearly, friends, that neither of these things work. Neither of these things give us freedom. Neither of these things enable us to have a right relationship with God and they become a trap or an endless burden. Because only God's grace is sovereign grace. And it's only because God's grace is sovereign grace that it is saving grace. So what are the implications of God's sovereign grace? Well, let me give you two. God's sovereign grace gives us boundless comfort and security. Boundless comfort and security. Because our salvation is God's work from beginning to end, it's not dependent on you and me. Praise the Lord for that. Just looking over my past week, it would be a complete failure. Saving grace is sovereign grace. Now, this is unsettling because it removes us from being at the center, from being in control, right? But it's of great comfort because it means God is in control, the all-loving, all-merciful creator. See, sovereign grace means that nothing we have done can make God love us less. And nothing we can do can make God love us more. 
There is nothing in your past, no matter how dark, no matter how unworthy it thinks, you think it makes you, no matter how ashamed you are of it, no matter how much you've hidden it, can stop God's sovereign love for you. You may say, look, I am unworthy if you knew the things I have done. And God says, yes, I, I know you're not worthy. <laughs> I've seen the things that you've done and the things that you've not done, but my grace is bigger. Friends, there is great comfort and blessing in this truth that your salvation goes into the eternal depths of God's sovereign grace. And so you can say with complete confidence that nothing can separate you from the love of God because it is in Christ Jesus. It's not in your own efforts or in your moral capability or in the good things you have done or in the number of times you've come to church or how close you sit to the front. I love it when there's people at church extra because the front two rows have people in them, praise the Lord. But that's not how you get saved. It is in Christ Jesus, God's sovereign grace. Friends, secondly, sovereign grace convicts us to humble prayer. Since God can take for himself anyone he chooses, then we can do nothing else but pray with boldness and confidence that God is able to save even the most hardened unbeliever, the most unlikely person you think can be saved by God's grace. Forget Richard Dawkins, think about Paul, who was a murderer of Christians. That's pretty far down the hardest of heart scale, wouldn't you say? God's grace is so sovereign, it can soften and transform Saul to Paul. See, God's sovereign grace is the greatest incentive to pray with hope that people will come to know and love the Lord Jesus. Friends and family and relatives, no one is too far from God's grace. No one has fallen too far because God's grace is sovereign grace. See, if God must wait for the initiative of the lost, if God has to wait for the blind to see or if God has to wait for the deaf to hear or if God has to wait for spiritual corpses to somehow raise themselves, then why bother praying? It's up to that person. But if God is able to raise the dead and if God is able to give sight to the blind, if God can make the deaf hear and raise the dead, then, then pray with boldness for family and friends. For saving grace is sovereign grace. Friends, who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress, says Paul, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? His answer is nothing. Because sovereign grace is saving grace. In his sovereignty, God has chosen us. 
In his sovereignty, God has called us, and in his sovereignty, God keeps us. Glory be to God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a a song that calls to mind this very truth. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Our gracious and sovereign Heavenly Father, we give you eternal thanks for your sovereign grace. Your grace which melts the hardest of hearts. Father, we give you thanks that for every step in the process of our salvation, it has been your grace at work. That your grace is larger than our biggest failing and our darkest sin. We thank you that you change hard hearts and raise the spiritually dead. And we pray that your sovereign grace will be at work in those whom we love and care for. May you continue to grow and transform and shape us as your people by your sovereign grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.